everyone. Welcome to Pro Se. We have a special episode for you this week where we're presenting our live show from the New York State Bar Association. Yeah, uh, it was their annual conference. It was uh, it was fun. It was fun to bring is to bring the show to the people. That's always an interesting exercise. It was good. You know, I know we're not supposed to take it personally, but all the booing and uh, <laughs> the old, I don't even know where I don't even know why you would bring rotten fruit to a, to a legal conference. I, the rotten but, fruit was directed only at Bill Donahue. Alex and I had a great time. At I the don't show. know why you're even bringing it up. That has all been studiously edited out. There was no reason. That's an unforced error by Steve. You. Had to take a lot of splat noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah the right, show. right. No, but it was a, it was a good time. And for anybody who wasn't able to attend the show in Manhattan, we just wanted to make sure it was available for everyone. We have a really great conversation with some special guests, uh, particularly about women in the law an issue that we really love talking about. So let's get right to it. And next week, we'll be back with a regular show. Thanks. Welcome to the live edition of the Pro Se Podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my great co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. Happy to be here live. And, and Alex Lawson. Let me hear it. Let's all hear it for the New York State Bar Association. <laughs> I, uh, you know, well, you know, I mean, we sit we sit in the studio every week and we do this, but it's uh, it's exciting to get out here and, and, and talk to the folk, you know? It's true, and, you know, I, I triangulated our position. We're at the uh, Midtown Hilton here in... in uh, uh, Midtown Manhattan, and we are sort of equidistant between Radio City Music Hall and Carnegie Hall, and frankly, they both asked, uh, but we were waiting for the big rooms. <laughs> That's right. We're going to build this show as Radio City adjacent. But yeah, uh, no, it's an exciting time. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, guys, that we uh, <laughs> I want to talk about, and I think hamburgers is what's on my mind. <laughs> yeah, if uh, you know, everyone should stay after the show. We have like 300 hamburgers ready you for everybody. You mean a thousand? You mean a yeah, thousand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> More importantly, we have the condiment packets on beautiful sterling silver uh, dinner platters. We have special Pro Se cups for all the fries. A little touch of class. I have to say, I was really disappointed. Uh, My top two fast food not included in that big spread. What are the top two? I feel like you guys know me well enough to know at least one of these two. Well, Taco Bell, I yeah, think. Yeah, Taco Bell yeah. was not there. It was not represented. We've been doing the show for like two years, so we, we're, we're familiar with each other's movements. Yeah. I mean, part of why I bring up the hamburgers is it's hilarious. But also, we do want to talk about the shutdown itself a bit at the top of the show. It's a nice pivot to some substantive news. It but is. Uh, let yeah. us not lose focus uh, for what gave rise to the hamburgers, which, of course, was the shutdown. Right. So, yes. So, uh, we at Law360 have been covering the shutdown extensively, as you can imagine. We've got a lot of reporters writing a lot of great stories, and we have a lot of readers, attorneys, coming to us and asking a lot of good questions. So we thought we'd run down quickly the top five things that you should know. Speed round. Exactly. So (laughs) the first one. We'll see how speedy it goes, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think the first one's the obvious one. When does the money run out for federal courts? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because it's sort of been a moving target. Uh, yeah, that's had a couple different answers. Because we originally had January 18th was the was the date put out no, by... No, January 11th in, oh, yes, okay. initially, gotcha. yeah. uh, and then that got pushed back to January 18th, which of course is this Friday. And now, and now this week we got January 25th. It conjures up uh, images of court officials turning over couch cushions. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yes, I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a serious thing, but yeah, it's been... Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's already kind of an uncertain situation in this idea of like, okay, we have another week. 
we have another week. Right. And maybe we'll squeeze another week out. Of well, I don't think anybody thought it would keep going this it's, long. I mean, you know, that's you a fair uh, statement, I think. Right. I mean, we're in the longest shutdown in U.S. history. And it is nice to know that the, the courts have pushed back that deadline. But, guys, the number number four thing on the list of questions is what happens when that money does run out? <laughs> I mean, do all the courts just shudder? What happens? It's an interesting question because it's not like when the money runs out, in quotes, it's not as though the courts shut their doors as we understand it. There is, um, you know, the current policy of the federal judiciary requires the courts to continue their core functions um, without, even without funding. Right. So that means that everybody except for Article Three judges, we have one in the House who we'll talk to later, um, uh, is getting paid. So that means the judges will get paid, but every other court worker, whether it's magistrate judges, public defenders, uh, pretrial services officers, you know, these people are sort of going to continue their work uh, mostly without pay, but even that is not like a sort of a broad brush answer. Right, and I and you know as in past shutdowns, like in 2013 and 1995, the other really big long ones, um, uh, we know the Supreme Court is going to stay open for for things like oral arguments and filings and stuff like that. So well, and even now, I mean, even as we sit here and the and the judiciary still has money. Um, the DOJ was one of the offices that was shuttered in the first wave of the. Um, of the shutdown. Right. So that means, you know, all federal litigants have already been sort of scrambling to, uh, uh, you know, e even when the courts are still open, you know, all the government litigants are having to make their own decisions about what right. to prioritize. Civil cases are often getting the chopping block first, criminal cases being prioritized as matters of sort of yeah, that's, more urgent Yeah, that's matters. essentially our number three question, which is how are schedules going to be affected? And I think you really got to the heart <laughs> right. of that, that um, for civil cases, they can be affected quite a bit by this well, shutdown. And, and needless to say, if you you know if you're an attorney practicing in court, you really don't you really want to have a good sense of when when the deadlines are. You don't want to have sort of a, a vague idea that they've been pushed back or that that you know you, you need to know if your case is going to be stayed or. Um, but uh, you know, and we should say for this, as we've mentioned, that uh, we pull a lot of this from our really great reporting that we that a lot of our colleagues have done. Our colleague Jimmy Hoover, our colleague Brandon Lowry, they put together really interesting stories about, you know, all the, the, the different ways this is affecting attorneys. The answer on on the schedules, I think, from what I gathered, is that there's no hard and fast answer. That, yeah, it seems you know, court by court, right? Right. Individual judges have some leeway to to set their own deadlines, to stay cases involving government agencies, to to do things like that. This is where, like, the wholly independent the wholly independent judiciary, which I think we would all agree is a is a good uh, sort of component of our society. Oh, yeah? Hot take. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, there, there will be more takes of varying <laughs> temperatures. Um, but this is, a, this is a time where, like, the fact that each court is sort of the ruler of its own kingdom in terms of what is happening to what cases sort of creates more uncertainty. There have been cases that have been granted stays. There are other cases that have been said, no, actually, you have to keep going, even if you, Justice Department lawyer, are not getting paid currently. Right. We were, so, yeah. We were talking about two big... Uh, there's two big FTC cases out in California, one against Qualcomm. Trial kicked off this week. It's going yeah. forward. But there's another case against a company named D-Link um, in, I think it was supposed to start next week, that has been postponed. So it just shows you, even in the same district, that, that they're taking sort of different approaches, looking at how far we're going to be into the shutdown, if we can push things back. Well, like let's look to another one of the big questions we've gotten, which is, what are some of these contingency plans that various courts have come up with? Because I think we've had some really <laughs> creative thinking out of the judicial branch on this. Yeah, we talked a little bit on last week's show about this, but it is, it is 
Fascinating. Alex, you want to explain it? Yeah. I mean, as we've said, as we've said a couple times now, courts are in charge of allocating their own resources as they see fit. Um, but one of our DC reporters, Jimmy Hoover, um, uh, did some interesting reporting on some more unconventional steps that courts are taking to marshal their resources. Um, and, you know, the, the, the courts are reliant on the General Services Administration for day-to-day -day funding. And that agency has already been shuttered by the shutdown. Um, one sort of creative way around that um, is uh, what's going on in the SDNY right now, the Southern District, they are using a, sort of trying out a video conferencing system that was originally designed, no joke, for pandemics. <laughs> if a pandemic should ever strike New York City, they would be able to do sort of, um, you know, essential things like criminal presentations uh, and other things like that through video conferencing. I like the forward planning there. It's I mean, it's to nice all... to know that there's things in, in place, but I don't think anybody really loves the idea that it's a shutdown that's caused us to well, have to use these measures. Well, it's good to get all the kinks out before an actual <laughs> pandemic. That's a, good, that's a good point. I mean, we're, we're being a little you know, jokey about the shutdown. The shutdown is a serious thing and it's affecting a lot of people. But yes, as you say, Bill, making sure that the pandemic protocol is in order is, uh, you know, something of a silver lining, right. I suppose. I think the biggest question that we've gotten, and one that I have myself, is all right, so the government is shut down. It's a long shutdown. Should everybody just take a vacation? <laughs> Should we be planning them now? Yeah, uh, you know, it's. It's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, attorneys in the room, attorneys listening later, uh, you know, if you feel you've earned a vacation, go ahead and take a vacation, <laughs> I think. Well, there is this DC thing where often people that have um, interactions on the Hill will plan all their vacations in August when sure. Congress is right. out. Is this kind of that? Is this the version of that where it's like, well, courts are slammed, stuff's postponed, gonna well, just plan that family trip. Uh, this had the, the, there was an added layer here, which is that, of course, the, the, the shutdown began on the Saturday before Christmas. Sure. So a lot of people were out of town and traveling anyway. Now we're, as you alluded to, people probably thought it might be resolved in a couple of weeks. Right. We don't appear to have any progress on that but front. But it was, it was an interesting anecdote from one of the guy's stories where they, they were talking to an expert who, you know, has looked back at these previous shutdowns. And the idea is that, yeah, it seems like maybe it'll keep going, but these things can end very rapidly and, you know, agreements can be reached and then all of a sudden you, you know, you've got a lot of catching up to do, especially, especially if your, your case has been pushed back or stuff has been, you're on a, you're on a beach chair in Aruba, you got a brief to file and then you're just up a creek. So no, no silver lining here, guys. All the attorneys don't take those vacations because the deadlines may sneak up on you when it all kicks back. There is an interesting bit of intrigue here because I was doing, I report on international trade for when I'm not doing the podcast and I was trying to do, you know, the Commerce Department has been shut down and there are numerous administrative proceedings that attorneys work on there. And I was trying to do a story about how the shutdown was affecting trade attorneys. And I didn't get a lot of bites. People weren't calling me back. And I was, the one guy who I was talking to was like, you know, I thought that attorneys would be so eager to complained to me about the government being shut down, then he was like, well, you might be right, but there are, are probably some lawyers who don't want to sort of implicitly admit that their work is solely dependent on the functioning <laughs> of the government. Uh, and I was like, I hadn't considered that. People eventually got back to me. So anyway, vacation at your own peril here, I suppose, is the big takeaway. Yeah. So those are our tips for what to do during the shutdown. Unfortunately, it means Everybody's got to keep working. Um, but up next, we're going to have a great guest with us. We're going to be joined by Michael Miller, and we're going to talk about the state of women in the law.
today on the show, we have a great first guest. It's the president of the New York State Bar Association, Michael Miller. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Michael, we want to talk today. I, I think I should quit right now. I yeah, you applause. That's great. The old Stanza. You got yeah. the room on your side, so... <laughs> Michael, what we want to talk today about today is something I know the, the Bar Association is doing a lot with, and that's the, the issues surrounding women in the law and their place in the profession. Um, law 360 has looked at this issue a lot, too. Every year we do something called the glass ceiling report, and every year I feel very depressed because it shows that the progress of women in the legal profession is essentially stalled. I think this year we found about 21% of equity partners are women. That's virtually unchanged from the previous year, and it's so much lower than the more than half of female graduates from law schools. So that's my view on sort of the broad brushstrokes of the problem, but I'd like to hear more about what you see as the state of women in the law right now. Yeah, bef before we do, I just want to comment on some of the things that you were just talking about with regard to the shutdown and the impact on the federal courts. Oh, sure. The New York State Bar Association has uh, a, a, a feels very strongly this is absolutely unacceptable that an in, the independent third branch of government is subject to the vagaries of politics. And this is just absolutely unacceptable. We need to find a, a, a separate funding mechanism for the courts so that this does not happen again. We will send a, a file of the show directly to the White House. So <laughs> yes. and, and you know, one of the things, though, as, we, as you were talking about the impact, we, we go from it seems one chaotic situation to another in America right now, sure. and we've become somewhat myopic. This is not just happening in America. If you take a look around the globe, just today in, uh, in the UK, Brexit, right. people were for it before they were against it, before they were for it, before they were against it, and in, an important alliance is unraveling before our eyes. You look at Hungary, they have a, a kangaroo court established recently that um, is controlled by the executive, right? Yeah, that that handles corruption cases. I, I, somebody in in Washington might like that a lot. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that uh, that's uh, the way an independent judiciary needs to operate. You look in Poland; a couple of dozen judges were summarily fired for giving decisions for making decisions that the government was unhappy with. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and and worse in the Philippines. In the past two years, 32 attorneys have been murdered because they represented people that the government did not like. 32 attorneys. You know, Shakespeare said, if you want tyranny to prevail, the first thing you do is kill all the lawyers. <laughs> this is a very important time for the legal community, for the rule of law. It is under assault everywhere. And this is an, an assault on the rule of law. Make no mistake about it. Right. If, when, if, when our judiciary cannot function properly, how can people have confidence in the rule of law? And when you have no confidence in the rule of law or it deteriorates, it, it affects everything yeah, and, and, and everybody. Especially, especially when the courts have, you know, over the, first, the past two years of this administration have provided, have proved to be something of a backstop stop against sort of often hastily crafted policies and things like that. And now if they can't even perform that function, that's certainly a serious thing that we take very seriously. But. 
So, um, yeah, I feel like we're going from one crisis conversation <laughs> into almost another yeah. um, well, when we sort of pivot back to talking about women in the profession. And maybe I'm saying this because I'm the woman on the panel, but it feels a bit like a crisis to me. How does it feel to you right now? Well, you know, it's unfair, actually, to ask me that question. I'm a man, and, <laughs> and my perspective is going to be v very different. But I, I think that if you, if you can step back a little bit, and look at history. Over the past 50 years, more progress has been made with regard to women in our society and in our profession especially than in the last 5,000 years. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and numbers don't lie. They don't tell the whole story, but they don't lie. You're right, we, we have a lot more to do. And, 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 but we, there has been a seismic shift. Mm -hmm. There has been a, a, a real change. Um, there was a report issued by the Minority Corporate Council Association in 2017 uh, that reflected that there are more women th than ever serving as general counsels for Fortune 500 com companies. Right. In 2000, there were only 43 women as general counsels. Th in 2017, that was up to 57 minorities and 132 women serving as general counsel in Fortune 500. So that's, a, that's a huge change. In the court system, we have so many more women than we did just uh, a generation ago. So there, there's, there, there has been change. Do we need to do more? Absolutely. Well, you said but, you mentioned you mentioned specifically that you know much is that there's still a lot to be done. So could you, you know, could you sort of explain to us like what you know what there is to be done, what what we what you view as sort of the the, the way forward. You know, there there, there are a lot of uh, parts uh, to that answer, but I think most of all, frankly, we men have to just get over. Uh, Can you know, I clap on my own it. podcast? Uh, because <laughs> there, it, you, you can't turn back history. Right, right. You can't per turn back the clock. And not only is it the right thing, it's the best thing. Right. We are better, our profession is better if we are inclusive in every conceivable way. Can you talk about that in more specific, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Can you talk about it in more specific terms? Like, I mean, it, there, the, there's a boys club culture that is, you know, that we're trying to sort of work out, I think people in the legal industry are. Like, like what would you give as advice to male partners or male of counsel or like in this world, like you say, like we have to get over it and be better. Like what does that mean well, in terms of concrete action in the work? I think, and I think what Alex is getting at is, you know, you cited really interesting stats about, about in-house counsel, but as Amber said at the, at the up top there, there's sort of a stubbornness to the numbers when we look at elite law firms. Um, yeah. So, you know, in that, in that realm, is there, are there sort of concrete steps that, uh, that you think need to be taken? Well, I, I, don't, I don't come from that culture, frankly. I'm a solo practitioner. Mm -hmm. I do have colleagues that are uh, in, in um, big law, as it were. And, and I think that the, the, there are more women serving on executive committees at the, at, in big law who are serving as general counsel. In fact, I have my office in, in a big law firm uh, that... Uh, uh, has a woman as the as the managing partner. You're you're finding that more and more. Uh, also in the court system, 
there's no question that, that, the, that there has been positive change. If you look at the New York State court system, for instance, in 2001, there were 305 female judges out of a total of over 1,200. Mm -hmm. In 2018, there were 507 female judges out of a total of 1,200 or so. That, that's a, a huge difference. That's yeah. almost 40%. Um, now, with the experience working in the courts, working as law secretaries, uh, they have more on their resumes. But um, as I said, we might have to get over it. Yeah. And, and it's happening. Right. It, and it's happening. So um, in terms of concrete you, uh, you, programs like this, also here at the Bar Association. Yeah, I was going to ask about the we, steps we, you guys have taken. Um, uh, well, I, I'm very proud to say that I believe I have appointed more women to chair our initiatives, our committees, and given opportunities for leadership, uh, then um, I don't know if any of my predecessors uh, uh, have appointed uh, as many women and people of color. It has been a, a high priority. Of course. That's really helpful, too, to their careers. I mean, you get a lot of visibility by participating in the Bar Association and chairing committees and, and being a part of the conversation, essentially. Absolutely, and 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 uh, and the networking and you, you, having the opportunity to be on the stage, so to speak. Right, and I understand that this year has also been a high watermark in terms of launching a new section within the New York City. Yes, I'm very proud of that. Let's talk a bit more about that. Tell yes. us all about it. Well, we have a structure where we have we have uh, sections that are uh, open enrollment, so to speak. And we have committees that are limited in number by, by uh, maybe 40 or 50 people. We had a woman in the law sec uh, committee for quite a number of years. And the very first agenda item of my first day as president uh, serving uh, on our executive committee, uh, we established the women in law section. It mm -hmm. is one of the fastest growing sections in the history of the association. It, uh, over 700 women have, um, have enrolled and, and it's growing in, uh, daily in leaps and bounds. And it gives women uh, and men uh, a greater opportunity to explore all the different challenges and create new opportunities to present themselves. And just as you said, what do we need to do? Well, we need to figure that out. Right. That seems like a really good incubator for these kind of conversations, for lawyers that are having these challenges. I mean, you pointed out astutely up top that as a man, you may not have that experience and know what's going on um, directly, personally, with women in the profession. But now that it's a, a full-blown section and they can all come together and share their experiences, I think good things will come out of that. Can you talk about the process of like pulling that section together? I mean, you made clear it was a big priority for you. I mean, did you... Um, I, do, I, I, I would like to know more about exactly how something like that comes together and like under the umbrella of the bar of the bar association. Well, we had a committee that was our foundation, mm. and the question was whether women would be interested in having a separate section. There was also some resistance to having a, a section that wasn't dedicated to a discrete area of law, like in, in constitutional law yeah. or uh, intellectual property, criminal justice. Um, but we do have a, a young lawyers section, and mm -hmm. we have a senior lawyers section. Yeah. So it just seemed that it was appropriate. And um, so they 
made a, uh, the case to our committee on committees, uh, which, which sounds very bullshit. <laughs> 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 but our, but our, our, our committee on committees, which evaluates the different uh, committees and their production and whether they um, need to be expanded or contracted or, and so forth, and they recommended uh, that, it, that we convert to a section. Yeah. And though there was some considerable resistance at first, I think everybody hmm. now is very much on board. I mean, we if you're going to have some bar association it. bureaucracy, it seems like women should be involved in it. So that's good. <laughs> the, the committee on committees. I think the thing I'm going to take away from our chat today is that um, we need to talk to you again next year and see what progress that committee has made and, and where we stand. Um, but it's been really great hearing that the bar is committed to making it really a push for women in the profession. Thanks for being with us, Michael. It's a, my pleasure. Thank you Thank very you, much Michael. for the opportunity. Very pleased to have as our second guest on today's show, the Chief Judge of the Southern District of New York, Colleen McMahon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So I want to continue the conversation we were having with Michael Miller about the state of women in the legal profession. And I know you're going to be on a panel later talking about um, ways that the law has fallen short in protecting people that have been part of the Me Too movement, how sexual harassment laws may not be the ultimate solution. Can you tell us a bit more on your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I happen to think that the law is the solution and that the problem uh, is that uh, uh, society um, has fallen short in allowing people who feel victimized by sexual harassment in the legal workplace or any other workplace uh, to come forward, because they don't believe that the law is going to help them. Right. I think the law would be much more helpful to them than they think mm. if they felt comfortable coming forward. Um, so I'm not in the boat that says that the law is failing. Something is failing, but it, it, but it ain't the law. Well, one of the things we mm -hmm. come back to a lot on this, and this is, it's, it's often within the context of the Trump administration, though this is an issue that well predates this administration is that the law is not self-executing. You know, I mean, it, it, it requires human beings to read it, interpret it, rule on it like yourself. And it's like it, merely having laws on the books is not enough. That doesn't mean the laws themselves are inadequate, as you say. But it's an interesting thing. Like, you have to be actively pursuing this priority under the umbrella of the law. Look, the, the courts... Are, we don't go out and ask for business. We don't right, go out exactly. and that's, that's, that's for what I'm business. saying. Yes. We're not allowed to do that. <laughs> By design. Right, We'd have, right. I'd have a much more interesting docket if I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that we, later. But yeah. we, have, we have to wait for the customers to exactly. come into yeah. the store. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and if, if, if what we have learned, especially in the last year as the Me Too movement has flowered, is that there are a whole lot of people who might well have found relief if they had come into the store mm -hmm. who, for better or worse, did not choose to do so. You cannot blame the law right. for a, <laughs> sure. for a lot or a failure by the courts for a lot of what you've seen in the last year because the courts but, were never asked to be involved. But what is the, what, then that sort of begs the question that if the law 
as it's currently constituted, sort of, you know, that's not at fault, then then what are the what are the ways to move forward? What are the what are the you know the things remedies, that yeah. yeah? What are the remedies if if folks are are unwilling to come into the store? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, yeah. and and it, it's a question that vexes me uh, because there's clearly an assumption uh, by many women, uh, by many people of color, where we're dealing with race discrimination law, by people of national origin, whatever. There's a, a, an assumption by a lot of people that I won't be helped, I won't be believed. Uh, uh, so there's no point in trying. Um, and, and it's particularly frustrating for me because um, I'm actually not a member of the club of people who need to come indoor. Um, uh, not only am I a judge, but I'm a judge who was never sexually harassed at any point during her career. Yeah. So, um, so while I think that the ultimate societal solution lies in trying to figure out what it is about the many women who have succeeded without ever being sexually harassed, who have this bubble around them, mm -hmm. um, uh, figuring out what it is and inoculating everybody with it uh, in the in the interval and oh and educating men that it's sure. no longer acceptable because this is not a one way street. Right. Um, uh, you, you you just plain have to rely on 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 a, a basic fundamental confidence that people have uh, in the court system and uh, it, and in the efficacy of laws. And, and I don't know how in a skeptical era, but we're skeptical of everything. Yeah. And where the courts are under attack um, by politicians, by business people, where their, um, their, their legitimacy, where the whole notion of what the founders intended by the courts is being undermined by a running to private courts, arbitrations, mm -hmm. mediations, right. yeah. bought and paid for judges, no rule of law, um, where you have that kind of atmosphere. I don't know how you inculcate in people the notion that if you have a real and legitimate complaint, you actually can get relief. Well, you, well but that you, you hit yeah. on a, an interesting point that we've brought up many times on, on our show is the, you know, the role of, of arbitration agreements and other sort of private contracts that do, you know, that, that goes beyond a, a, a a difficulty with getting into court. That's an actual structural impediment to getting into court. And it seems like a, maybe that's maybe a thing that, that can be, you know, can, can that be a focus? That Look, in, in, in 1991, Congress uh, created a jury trial right for Title VII cases and passed the Americans with Disabilities Act yeah. in direct response to decisions of the United States Supreme Court. Congress decided that these were things that needed to happen. Right. The Supreme Court said they don't happen under current law, which happened to be correct. Mm -hmm. and, and so Congress did something about it. Congress could, with the stroke of a pen, I, I personally think that the, the scope of the um, uh, arbitration, the Federal Arbitration Act has been way, way extended beyond mm -hmm. what was ever intended by the people who wrote it. 
Uh, and if you read the legislative history of that statute, you'll know that I'm right on that. <laughs> uh, but, but it would never be used to resolve labor disputes, for example. I've got Senator the legislative so history right here. No, I'm but, <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but Congress can redress this mm -hmm. yeah. with the stroke yeah. of a pen. Congress can make it possible for everybody who has an employment discrimination case or a in, uh, of sexual harassment nature or any other to get into court I don't see that happening anytime in the near future. I, I wanted to ask you to circle back to something you said, because we're talking about the issue of sexual harassment um, as it applies to anyone in any walk of life, but we also were talking with Michael about how it manifests in the legal industry. Um, and I was taken by, as in our prepping for the show, we came across the story from 2017 about um, Judge Jack Weinstein in the Eastern District who had imposed, who, who made a rule within his own court that was designed to give female attorneys sort of more, more uh, of a role in arguments. Which is not about sexual harassment, it's about gender discrimination. Oh yes, yeah, 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 this is, yeah, I'm, I'm pivoting. And, Forgive and, me, yeah. I get really technical. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's fair. fine. And you said you never. That's my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you said you never experienced anything like that. I'm just wondering what you think um, about, um, about the role of judges within their own courtroom to exert some measure of control in this. Well, I actually think it's important. Uh, Jack is uh, uh, the the leader of us all uh, uh, <laughs> and the conscience of us all. And, and, and it's important, I think, for judges to recognize uh, the fact that uh, either there are no women in the courtroom or there are women in the courtroom. But I'll tell you a sad story of something that happened to me. I don't have a hard and fast rule uh, the way uh, Judge Weinstein does. Um, but I had a commercial case come into court. Uh, two big law firms were on either side. Uh, and oh, on one, there were three lawyers. It was uh, a, a man, obviously the more senior partner, um, I'm assuming from age, and, and two uh, women. Uh, and I looked at one of the women and I said, counsel, and I asked her a question. And she froze. Mm. And she did not get up on her feet. Now, had that been me in 1977, a long time ago, <laughs> um, Arthur Lyman or Marty London would have hit me on the back, <laughs> kicked me in the butt, and told me, and I would be on my feet. Um, I mean, uh, and, 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 and this, this male partner did not do that. And she, she sat there and she looked at him kind of mutely and then looked at me and to get her out of trouble, I said, I think I'll ask that question to Mr. Jones. Um, but, but what are we supposed to do? Right. Well, does that it, indicate, we, though, that we need male um, mentors and support in a yes, way? Yes, you do. I had nothing but male mentors and support because yeah. there weren't any women well, it was to in the do. 70s. So, so do, yes. you well, worry, and do you worry a bit that um, we're now in a, for lack of a better term for this, the Pence rule era? where um, many men are reticent to mentor young women. Well, you know, I, I gave a speech a year ago, which went viral, uh, uh, about... Uh, to my, Not to brag. To my, to my, yeah. to, well, to my great shock. I have no it idea. was a great speech, if anybody um, hasn't, hasn't uh, read about, it. About the, the, the Me Too movement, and uh, I, was, I was very prescient. There I will pat myself on the back, because I predicted that there would be backlash. I predicted correctly the nature of the backlash. And we all know from reading uh, uh, John Simon in the Wall Street Journal or uh, uh, this one or that one, uh, that we have uh, men who are reacting 
uh, to the Me Too movement uh, by moving away from working for women. I, I like to tell the story that the backlash actually began the night I gave the speech when I was trying to get out of the building and I was accosted by a guy who just wanted me to know that I was naive to think uh, that uh, behaving in a manner that would not get you written up on the front page of the New York Times was actually a way to Oof. deal with working with women. And he wasn't going to work with any women <laughs> until this all blew over. I mean, literally, it's I a, didn't. That's a snake eating its really? tail. I, I, I did I mean, not yeah. get out of the building. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, yes, it's a problem. It's illegal. Yeah. And yeah. again, it requires women who are willing to come forward to acknowledge that their career at that institution is probably over, then again, why would you want to work there? Mm -hmm. um, to come forward, uh, to bring the claim, uh, to, uh, I'll bet you guys would write that claim up. I'll bet that would be a lead story on Law 360 that- I would can, imagine, can, yeah. can confirm, yes. 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 Yeah. Okay, so, so uh, but again, it requires the customer to come in the door. Yeah. Now, if, but do a, we also need if a lawyer, if a woman lawyer is not sufficiently um, comfortable and uh, enamored of her own status, to walk in the door, how can I expect a waitress to do so? Well, do we need men, though, also to look at that and say to fellow managing partners, hey, I see that you don't mentor any of the women at this firm. I mean, do we need a little uprising from the male side of this as well? Oh, this is not, I keep saying this is not a one-way street. Yeah, right. Men, men need to be retrained. Um, it'll be easier to train the young ones coming up, but right. yes, men do need to be retrained. And um, uh, every firm operates differently, but if I were the managing partner of a big law firm, which I am not, but I might have been if I'd stayed in a big law firm, um, there would be demerits for people okay. who worked exclusively with male teams. And they would come in and they would say, but but I generated all this business and I did this and I did that. And I would say, too bad. <laughs> that's, that's well said. <laughs> now, I, but law, big law, all law, is a, a money-driven profession. So uh, the incentive for any law firm to penalize a partner uh, who is economically profitable because he is not uh, gender uh, neutral or mm -hmm. um, or, yeah. or gender or woke uh, <laughs> uh, is 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 very very low. It happens to be low on the priority list. Definitely. So but since we're all going to get eaten by AI anyway within <laughs> ten years, and and we're going to become completely superfluous, you know, we have a very short window in which to fix this. Problem. I doubt I think, an AI I think we'll, judge would bring the passion that you bring to uh, to to these proceedings. But well, that's, I don't that's, know. That's, 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 that's just that's just that's just my observation. I figured. I've figured out that arbitrators are going to be eliminated by AI, associates yeah. are going to be eliminated by AI, but federal judges cannot be eliminated by anything except a constitutional amendment. So. <laughs> what, about, what about journalists? Yeah. Any, uh, Save journalists, they will be, as was said about the poor, they will be always with us. <laughs> nice. 
So while we have you here, we want to leave on a little bit of a, a light note to our Good, conversation Good, that means we're not going to talk about the shutdown. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like we're all saddened enough by that already. Um, but one thing we wanted to ask you, since we have a room full of lawyers, um, what kind of behaviors should they avoid in your courtroom? Do you have any pet peeves, anything that you want to just... Put Arguments, the briefings, there whatever. You yeah. know, it's it's all pretty obvious. Uh, uh, I, lo- I love mixing it up with really well-prepared lawyers. It's, it happens to be the best part of my job. Really, it is. I just love mixing it up with well-prepared lawyers. Therefore, the thing you should avoid is not being well-prepared. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I feel like we all learned I, that I, early I can in the in negative school. space there. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you, you would be surprised. Every year, uh, my new law clerks, within a month, uh, walk into my office with a pile of briefs that are bad briefs, and they say, Judge, we didn't know people could appear in federal court if they wrote like this. <laughs> and uh, it, it, sadly, we get, we get the full range. Um, so that one of my pet peeves is, is lack of preparation. People who come into conferences who literally haven't spoken to their clients, who don't really know what they're talking about, and who don't know what the case is worth. What, what, what's the point of having a conference? Well, I'm curious. I mean, you, you, you highlighted, like, oh, these are bad briefs. You're talking to writers and editors here. I'm curious as to, like, what you mean, like, by what makes it, like, are there bad, like, writing habits or, like, organizational things? Like, how does that manifest? I'm all, just curious. All, all of the above. Yeah, all yeah. All of the above. I'm, I'm a stickler for good organization. I'm also a stickler for really, really good grammar. Okay. Uh, Us too. Uh, nice. But I understand, that, again, on AI, I understand there is a, a, a program that is being perfected by some outside agency that if they will give it to the courts, will tell us not only about the cases that you cite in a brief, but what cases you should have cited that you didn't cite, <laughs> um, which, which very much intrigues me. I only heard about that yesterday. Oh, yeah. wow. I mean, and my other, my other complaint is, is, you know, be adults. Work out your differences. Don't be petty. Um, I, you get these letters. We call them whiny letters. <laughs> yeah, no, lawyer on the other side won't do. He won't do it. I want him to do it. And, 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 and frankly, that's how they read. <laughs> that's how they read to us. And, and I, I will say, look, I practiced law for 20 years. Uh, big law, although they didn't call it big law then. And I, and, and I have wondered sometimes if I ever wrote such letters. I must have written one or two. But it should be easy to recognize what kind of disputes a judge will think you are silly for not being able to work out on your own. Right. This is not the I'm telling mom, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, line of defense. they're going, he wants to change his testimony. <laughs> the well, nerve. Okay, that's why we have cross-examination. <laughs> I, I, you know. Well, I love that dose of common sense to end our program today. Thanks for being with us. Delighted Thanks, to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Judge. Appreciate it. We also, we'd like to thank a lot of people today. First of all, our great audience. Thanks for being with us for thank our first guys. live thank show. Thank you all very much. Yeah, give yourselves a round of applause. We're so pleased to have partnered with the New York State Bar Association to bring this program together. They've been great through the whole process. So thanks to them. And... And of course, our great guests today, Michael Miller and Judge McMahon. And I always want to end our shows by ending by saying um, thanks to our great producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, who help us so much in the show.
And as always, guys, I do a little plug for Law360. If you want to know more about some of the things we've talked about, we're writing about these every day. You can just find us at law360.com slash podcasts. And um, we hope that you will find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find the show. And um, go tell your colleagues how fun this was. We'd love to have um, new listeners join us every day. Thanks so much for being with us.